Presses Play. Hey everyone, and welcome to Girl Presses Play, the movie podcast where we talk about films, what we think about them, and what makes them so damn great. I'm your host, Alana Rafferty. Get comfy, grab some popcorn, and get ready, because we're about to press play. And now for our feature presentation. Hey everyone, welcome back. As usual, I hope you all are happy and healthy and watching as many movies as your heart desires. I know I say this a lot, but I personally think it's nice to have something consistent and reliable, like that one bodega cat that you always pass on your way home from work, or it's a wonderful life playing on TV every Christmas. But I digress, because we've got some film remakes to talk about. So if you know me personally, You know that I love Vegas a lot, and I love almost more than that. I love a good Vegas movie. So I was already really excited to do this episode, but this time around, I decided to jazz things up a bit by watching the remake and then the original. This is one of those fairly rare cases where, without a doubt, the remake was much better, but it's not totally at the fault of the original cast and crew. I say that because the original Ocean's Eleven was made in 1960 while the Hayes Moral Production Code was still in effect. So that meant that the filmmakers were pretty limited in what they could depict, which is a pretty big deal considering that it is a crime movie when you really boil it down. And it got me thinking a lot about working under restrictions and how sometimes that can really help a movie. A great case of that is Jaws, where the shark broke, and then they decided to make all those really great POV shots instead, which made the film more effective. But I think there's a difference between that and having to constrict your movie to moral standards that somebody else deems okay. So today we're going to compare the 1960 Ocean's Eleven to its remake, Ocean's Eleven, in 2001, and explore how films should be made free of constraints of societal norms and what somebody else deems is morally okay. So first, here's a little refresher for those of you who either don't remember or perhaps have maybe never heard of the Hayes Moral Codes. The Fatty Arbuckle rape case of 1921 and the murder of actor William Desmond Taylor in 1920, I believe, prompted the AMPAS, which is the the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, President Will Hayes to create moral codes that would appeal to 
most American audiences, and specifically audiences who lived in states where there were very strict legal moral codes upheld. So every movie made in America under these codes had to abide by them. Some of the rules that specifically pertained to Ocean's Eleven were crime and immorality could never be portrayed in a positive light, criminals should not be made into heroes, and methods of committing crime could not be explicitly presented. While Charles Lederer, who, fun fact, also wrote the screenplay for The Thing from Another World, which we talked about in episode one, took some liberties with that last rule, he and Warner Brothers were very much beholden to the previous two rules, not just in the legal sense, but in the financial sense, in that if their movie didn't get approved by Ampass, then the film wouldn't screen in movie theaters anywhere. And if it wasn't in movie theaters, people couldn't go to see it and pay for it. So they had a lot of incentive to follow the Hayes Code as well as humanly possible. While the intrinsic charm of the Rat Pack cast, Sinatra, Dean Martin, Sammy Davis Jr., Joey Bishop, Peter Lawford, helped the film skirt around that first rule, because yes, they weren't depicted as the heroes, but damn, they were just so cool and charming committing crimes. How could they not be? They were the Rat Pack. Even that level of charm and likability couldn't sell the ending where, spoiler alert for the ending, spoiler for anyone who hasn't seen it, in the end, one of the ba biggest payoffs of any heist movie, you don't get that payoff. After the safecracker Bergdorf, played by Peter Conte, dies the night of the heist after they've completed it, they hide the money in his casket so they can bring it back to San Francisco and divide it among themselves. And then, of course, the body is cremated. <laughs> I kid you not, when that ending happened, and the last shot is this now very morose gang walking down Las Vegas Boulevard. I blurted out, what? When the credits started rolling. Because as an audience member, you went from beginning to end with them. And you feel just as bummed and unsatisfied about how things turned out as the characters are. Which I guess is also a sign of good filmmaking from the director Lewis Milestone because we're at the very least on the same emotional page as our main characters that we're supposed to be following. And yes, I would like to note that there was some onset trouble during the making of the film. Sinatra's drinking got in the way as well as the Rat Pack's insane performance schedule while in Vegas. I do think the bigger problem was the fact that the fantasy of the heist film was never possible to fulfill when the movie was made. Yes, foreign movies and the advent of TV were pushing some of those boundaries the Hayes Code set, and audiences were becoming a little less socially conservative as time moved on. But this movie was pretty expensive for the time. It was made in 1960 for $2.5 million, which today would be about $23 million, so the producers involved probably wanted to make sure they could appeal to the widest possible audience. And I think the film suffers from that. Vegas is gorgeously shot by William H. Daniels in this film, and the opening credits by legendary poster designer Saul Bass are very fun. And of course, the Rat Pack. It is so very hard not to be charmed by them. But even if the film had been made just a few years later in 1968, when the Hayes Code was replaced by the MPAA rating system that we use today, 
it could have been written so much more to its potential. Well, I'm straight along with this operation, but I'm scared. I mean, it's no panic, it's just a little, little something gets me right up in here. That's the only way to be. Makes you careful. Look, Vince, the brave ones don't come home. You stay scared. Yeah, you were always one of those guys who didn't want any brave ones on patrol with you, weren't you? That's simple enough. In my book, bravery rhymed with stupid, and it still does. And bravery also rhymes with... We'll be right back after this quick commercial break, so stick around. Hey everyone, Alana here, and it's been a lot of fun making this podcast. I get to talk about what I love, meet some really cool people doing it, and I have total creative freedom. Are you interested in making your own podcast? Go for it, and go for it with Anchor. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many, many more platforms. There's even creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. And best of all, it's free. So what are you waiting for? Download the free Anchor app or go to Anchor FM to get started. And welcome back. So before the commercial break, we were talking a little bit about how the original Rat Pack starring Ocean's Eleven was fun and interesting, but because of the time that Warner Brothers had to make it in, which was right in the middle of the Hayes Moral Code still being in effect, it wasn't... It wasn't as great of a movie as it could have been, as it had the potential to be. Then, 41 years later, when Warner Brothers decided to remake the movie in 2001, they weren't beholden to any moral codes. They may have, for example, wanted to try to keep the rating PG-13 in order to attract a wide audience. And during filming in 2001, there was a portion of the film that was reworked to be respectful to the World Trade Center attacks that happened earlier that year. But for the most part, filmmaker Steven Soderbergh and producer Jerry Weintraub could pretty much do whatever they wanted with the film. It does have a lot of the same elements that makes the original enjoyable. A cast of superstars we love, Vegas in all of its glitzy, excessive glory. But this movie, in a very Soderbergh way, is much more lean and focused. We learn much more about the characters and who they are as people, why they're pulling off the heist, and we, spoiler alert, get the ending that that we want to see happen. Our charismatic criminals get to drive off into the horizon with the millions that they stole right under the nose of the house. Soderbergh even said in an interview, I wanted to give the audience pleasure from beginning to end. To make a movie that you just surrender to without embarrassment or regret. And he was thankfully able to do that in a post-Haze Code world. Look, just out of curiosity, which casinos did you geniuses pick to rob? The Bellagio, the Mirage, and the MGM Grand. Those are Terry Benedict's casinos. Is that right? That's right. You guys, what do you got against Terry Benedict? What do you have against him? That's the question. Don't think I don't see what you're doing. What are we doing, Ruben? You're gonna steal from Terry Benedict. You better damn know. 
this sort of thing used to be civilized. You'd hit a guy, he'd whack you, done. But with Benedict, at the end of this, he better not know you're involved, not know your names, or think you're dead, because he'll kill you. And then he'll go to work on you. That's why we have to be very careful, very precise, mm. well-funded. Yeah. Ethics writer James Bowman brings up a very interesting counter-argument in his article written about these films for the online publication The Ethics and Public Policy Center. He says, I doubt if anyone would nowadays consider the original Ocean's Eleven a great movie, but at least they knew how the movie ought to end. Not because I believe their producers feared persecution, but because this was merely a codification of what everybody knew anyway, which was that it is not the lot of man on earth to get away by sheer cleverness with the fame and the girl and the money. We can all be successful for a while, but in the end, no one gets out alive. To remind us of this essential fact of the human condition is what art was created for. I don't fully disagree with this idea. I gotta say that. I do think art is meant to reflect the human condition and help us look into it from a different vantage point. But even then, it's not meant to be setting some sort of moral standard for audiences to try and live by. And I think that there is a time and a place for art to be a realm of fantasy, to show us the kind of things that could be possible, or the kind of people we could be. I would even go as far as to say that it's healthy to experience fantasy in the conscious part of our brains. It lets us feel like we did what we always thought about and wanted to without actually having to commit to it and cause a lot of consequences that we wouldn't want to cause in our actual lives. It's like horror films and the fantasy of seeing our deepest fears conquered by the final girl. Although in this case, the final girl is George Clooney. <laughs> and the monster is the system being rigged and no one being able to do anything about it, no matter how hard you try. So if we learned anything from looking at these two movies, it's that film should be free of moral restrictions within reason, strong emphasis on reason. Films are meant to reflect the ideas of the creative folks behind them, not to strengthen whatever social and cultural norms are in place at the time the movie was made, even if that may be happening on a more subconscious level. And films are meant to show us what's possible and what we should be questioning, not, not what strict standards someone else thinks we need to comply to. Think about it this way. If we still had the Hayes Code enacted today, great films like Moonlight, Dog Day Afternoon, Bend It Like Beckham, The Hunger Games, The Departed, Easy Rider, and most horror movies, they wouldn't have been possible or had to have been heavily, heavily edited in order to get approved for release. And the great thing about looking at how this happened over 40 years, just think in the next 40 years how much more free to express themselves film creatives would be. I mean, I think a great example of that is the spiritual cousin, shall we say, to the current Ocean's Eleven movies, Ocean's Eight, where there's a lot more gender diversity. It's an all-female group. There is a lot more representation of people of color in the film. And along with the current movements and initiatives to get more people of color, LGBTQ people, and women behind the camera... Just think of how much more expressive the film world is going to become in the next 40 years. I'm personally very, very excited for that. 
and I hope you are too. I'm sure you are. Thanks again for tuning in. What did you think of these remakes? Did you think the original maybe gets a hard rep? Do you think Brad Pitt's eating and the remake is too distracting? Let me know what you think about these films or what you thought about this episode on our social media pages on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Girl Presses Play. Be sure to tune in April 15th when we talk with the film class zeros, Rich Dambolian and... to talk about the original and remake of The Wicker Man, which sure should be an interesting and colorful discussion considering how different those two movies are. And thanks again for tuning in. As always, stay safe and keep watching movies. See you next time. Thanks so much for listening. Be sure to check back every Tuesday for new episodes and be sure to check us out on our Patreon page where you can support the show and get some really cool exclusive stuff for doing it. Special thanks to John F., Feriolo Fencing, LLC, Mariano Dwyer, and Helen Rafferty. For news on upcoming episodes, be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Girl Presses Play. The show is written, produced, and hosted by Alana Rafferty. Intro music is composed by Asha Iwanowitz, and our logo design is by Mark Sauve. Thanks again. See you next time. Girl, press this play.